All right, if you'll start making your way back to your seats, if you've moved far from them, and as you do, open your Bible to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. This morning we're continuing on in our series. We started a few weeks back, a series, an Advent series as we wait for Christmas morning, a series that's entitled, When Jesus Shows Up. And this morning we're going we're gonna to be looking at the story of Jesus' birth, but with a special focus on, on the shepherds. And so we're going to look at Luke 2, verses 1 through 20. And I know you just sat down, but I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's Word as we read together Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 20. This is what, what Luke records for us. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This First registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. Then the angels, or when the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and they found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. After seeing them, they reported the message that they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. And this morning, I want us to consider this idea that when Jesus shows up, we find glory in the mundane. We find glory in the mundane. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I ask in your grace and your kindness that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people. This moment is too big for any one of us, but with the Spirit's help, God, we might understand you a little bit more and see you as more glorious because of it. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
when Jesus shows up, we find glory in the mundane. There's a story I've heard told by countless pastors in different variations and at different times. I don't know if it's a true story or not, but it makes for a great sermon intro, so here goes. There's, there's a story of two men who met uh, while receiving chemo treatment for cancer. They were on a similar schedule, and so they'd often sit together while receiving chemo. Both of them knew that the chemo was simply prolonging the inevitable. Both men had variations of cancer from which they were not likely to recover, barring some miraculous intervention. The chemo was to give them a little bit more time not to cure them of their cancer. And these men met in the hospital while receiving uh, the treatment. They, they struck up a friendship. The friendship began because one of the men, he was the younger of the two. <clears throat> he was a wealthy man. He'd made it in business. He had a small fortune. He had the goods that this life could provide. He had the family. He had kind of the quintessential, if you will, American dream life. But he was intrigued by this older man. You see, the older man, anytime he was around, he seemed to always have a smile on his face. Even though he knew his life was coming to an end, there was joy. There was something about this man that drew people to him. In fact, it's what drew the younger man to him in the first place. They ended up striking up a friendship. They talked at first about inconsequential things like the weather or sports or politics. But the longer the chemo went on, the more angry the younger man became with his situation and the fact that his life was coming to an end. And he was, if he was honest, he would have said that he was a little angry about the fact that as the older man was drawing near to the same fade, it seemed as if the older man had more and more joy. And so in one particular chemo session, as the story's told, the joy of the older man was too much. And so the younger man had to figure out what it was that allowed this man to have so much joy. And so he began, you know, they had a friendship at this point, so he began to question him. His first thought was, well, maybe this guy was just better at business than me. Maybe he's got more stuff. So he asked the man, hey, what did, what did you do for a living? And the older man explained that for the entirety of his life, he worked at a grocery store. The younger man, a little confused, asked, is there good money in that? Which the older man said, absolutely not. So it wasn't the money that the old man had. Well, maybe it was family. So <clears throat> the younger man asked him, so, so do you have a wife? Do you have children? The older man explained that he was married when he was younger, but very early on in their marriage, before they were able to have children, his wife actually died of sickness. Well, that's even more depressing and less of a reason to have joy. So it clearly wasn't the family and he thought, well, maybe this man's prognosis has changed, but he just hasn't wanted to tell me yet. And so he asked, hey, have you received good news about your treatment? And the older man responded, no, I'm, I'm still coming to the end of my life. And so in frustration, but a moment of brutal honesty, the younger man blurted out, well, what is it that makes you so happy? I don't understand. Nothing about your life is extraordinary. 
You worked at a grocery store your whole life. You don't have money. You had a wife who died when you were young and you never had kids and you, you don't have a family. Your life is going to end. Excuse me for saying, but you've lived an ordinary life. And the older man smiled and said, yes, but Jesus has been with me in every ordinary moment. You see, often we can get caught in this trap of thinking that to experience the glory of God, we have to have extravagant stories. We have to have lives that push past the ordinary and the mundane. We have to have extraordinary experiences or occupations or family. We have to somehow move beyond the everyday nine to five grind and then we will truly see and savor the glory of God. But the story we just read, the birth of Jesus and the declaration of the shepherds, It's positioned to teach us this morning that when Jesus shows up, we find glory in the mundane. Let me just put it plain for you. We don't need big platforms. We don't need massive social media followings. We don't need big houses, big bank accounts. We don't need the extraordinary to see and savor the glory of God. Because when Jesus shows up, he shows up first and foremost in the everyday mundane, and the ordinary. So what I want to do this morning is I want to try to show you that. There are three realities that I want to point out to you this morning as we work through this text and hopefully argue for the truth that when Jesus shows up, we find glory in the mundane. So here's the first thing that I want you to see in our text. Jesus shows up in the mundane. Right, the story recorded there in Luke 2, the birth of Jesus, verses 1 through 4. Let me, let me read it again to you. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David to be registered along with Mary who was engaged to him and was pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him tightly in cloth, laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. There was no room in the inn. Now I know this is a story, especially if you grew up in church like me, you probably know it. You could tell it to me. It's a beautiful story. You know the songs about it about Jesus being born, away in a manger, all that stuff. This is familiar to you. You've heard the beautiful story. You know about Mary, Joseph, traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem. You know that there was no room for them in the end, that Jesus was born, wrapped in swaddling cloth, laid in a manger. But in this story, this seemingly mundane story, the details matter. And the details are telling a bigger story. They are revealing the glory of Jesus. But notice this. It's only if you're willing to press into the mundane that you see the glory of it. Let me try to show you, point out a few of these details. You could take, for example, where they're traveling from, Nazareth. What's significant about Nazareth? Ultimately, nothing. But that's what makes it significant for us. See, Nathaniel picked up on this in John 1, 36. When Jesus is older, he's calling his disciples after Philip encounters Jesus. Jesus tells Philip to come and follow me. Philip runs to find his friend Nathaniel, and he says in John 1, 45, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets. 
Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And I love Nathaniel's response because it's an honest response. And in the very next verse, John 1, 46, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip responds, come and see. Even the Jews recognized that Nazareth was nothing. It wasn't Rome in all of its grandeur. It wasn't Jerusalem with its religious rigor. It wasn't a coastal city along the Mediterranean Sea with all of its commerce and wealth. It was just Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, where's the glory in that? Well, I'll tell you, the glory is revealed in the truth that Isaiah declares in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For your thoughts are not my thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You see, the glory of this small detail of Nazareth, this town that was overlooked, nobody cared for it. The glory is it's a reminder to us that the Lord doesn't operate like we do. He doesn't look at the ways of the world and say, I have to do it that way. I have to value what the world values or the people won't get it. No, God's ways are not our ways, but this should cause us to pause and reflect for a moment. Like we, we've got to do some introspection here, right? If, if God's ways are not the world's ways, then the question that we have to ask is, are we looking to the world's ways and thinking they are God's ways? I'll put it plain. Y'all look like you're tired, so I'll, just, I'll lay it out here for you. Are we looking to politics for a deliverer as if Jesus wasn't sufficient? Because I saw some of the way y'all talked about Trump, some of the way y'all talked about Biden. Y'all looking at them like they're Jesus and they won't cut it. Are we looking to policy to direct our steps as if the Bible is not sufficient? Because I'll be honest with you, there's no, there's no policy that can curve our immoral hearts. Are we looking to the things of this world to define our worth and our value and our dignity as if the image of God that we possess isn't sufficient? But listen, I know we are, even as Christians. Let's just, we have this conversation because I hear it in the rhetoric of so many churches that we, we listen to. Talking about God's got a destiny for you and it's bigger and it's greater and it's grander in this life than anything that you could have ever imagined. I don't see that in the Bible. God's going to give you that promotion. God's going to give you that, that bank account. God's going to give you that, that person. He's going to give you all the things of this world that you want but you don't have. You just got to believe for it enough. You got to hope for it enough. You got to think about it enough. You got to manifest it enough. Whatever you want to say. But let's not act like we don't buy into that as if the goodness of God, the glory of Jesus is only revealed in the extravagant. Our hearts are glory-craving hearts. But what God is revealing to us in this small detail of Nazareth is God is revealing his glory in the mundane. It's not Rome. It's not Jerusalem. It's not a city of wealth. It's Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, and when every person says no, God says, watch this. But there's more. Consider where they're traveling to. Bethlehem. Luke 2, 4, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family line of David. 
Again, this may seem like a mundane detail about Jesus' lineage and his travel itinerary. But God is declaring something. By mentioning Bethlehem, God is declaring in the mundane the glorious truth that God always keeps his promises. I mean, consider the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. He said to David, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, that's a fancy way that God says, so when you die, David, I'm going to raise up after you a descendant who will come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Solomon couldn't do it. No king following David could do it. Until this moment. When a man and his betrothed travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. When the king who will establish God's throne forever is born And there's no room for him. Someone from David's line would establish the kingdom of God forever. But then you also have the prophecy of Micah in Micah 5 too. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel from me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. That's a theology lesson right there. One's going to come, but he's always been. See, in what can appear to be the mundane, the glory of God is being revealed. The faithfulness of God is being declared. God is reminding his people that you may have forgotten about the promise, but I didn't. You may have forgotten me, but I have never forgotten what I said I would do for you. You may fail to love me, but I will never fail to love you. And again, we only see this if we're willing to sit in the mundane for a minute. Perhaps that isn't only true about our text. Maybe that's true about our lives as well. Maybe some of us are missing the glory of God because we're only looking for it in the extravagant. And we miss his presence and his working in the small, in the ordinary, in the mundane, in the car rides every day to pick up your kid from school, with the dirty diapers, with the laundry, with the dishes, when you are sitting at your desk answering those tedious phone calls and emails. Maybe it's in those moments where God's glory truly shows off if you're willing to sit in the mundane. There are so many apparently mundane details in this text where God's glory glory is revealed. By the time I finished it, I had a list of seven. I'm going to stop with this next one. We're going to do three, okay? Because I got two other points we got to get to. I'm not trying to be here all day. But I'm going to give you one more. Luke records this in verse 7. He says, Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for him. This appears to be a mundane detail. Specifically the fact that he was wrapped in cloth. Have you ever thought about that? Why would God make it a point to say he's wrapped in cloth? Why would he make it a point to tell the shepherds later on he's wrapped in cloth? Like it probably would have been enough to say there's going to be a baby in a feeding trough. I don't think there were that many. But God makes it a point to say, but he's wrapped in cloth. Could there be something significant about that beyond the lesson to make sure your kids have clothes on? Well, this detail has a purpose because this isn't the first time a child and cloth are mentioned in the Bible. And it draws the hearer's mind back to Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 4, 
when God expresses concern for Israel. And he says, as for your birth, Israel, your umbilical cord wasn't cut on the day you were born and you weren't washed clean with water. You were not rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. And in essence, what God is saying is that you weren't cared for as evidenced by a failure to be clothed. And as Ezekiel goes on, we find out that it was God who clothes Israel, that it was God who cared for them, that it was God who covenanted with them, and still they played the harlot and turned to other lovers. But here in this text, Jesus is clothed. He is cared for by God, but unlike the people who failed to live up to the covenant, This baby born in Bethlehem, wrapped in cloth, was not only loved by God the Father, but he would do what Israel could not do. He would live in perfect obedience to the command of God the Father. He would fulfill the covenant that Israel failed to fulfill. He would be the child that Israel could not be, and through him, redemption would come. And what what these first verses reveal to us is that God's glory is present in the mundane. Jesus shows up in the mundane. But here's why this matters so much, and I've already hinted at it. It challenges our glory-craving hearts. Again, let's be honest. We want the grand. We want the extraordinary. We want all the amazing things. And they're not necessarily bad in and of themselves. It's not even necessarily bad to want the good and the extravagant and the glorious as some of these things are in the world. But the problem comes when we only think that Jesus is in those things. And we miss him in the mundane and the ordinary. Because let's be, let's be real. Some of us are never going to have the platform. We're never going to have the following. We're never going to be the CEO. We're never going to to have have the family and, and the history. We're not going to have all that stuff. And so the question is, can God still be glorious in our life if we don't have the things that the world values? I like how Thabiti and Yabuile puts it when he reminds us, before there is glory, there must first be humility. That's the way the kingdom of God operates. He writes, the first will be last and the last will be first. That God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself before the Lord. In the due time, he will exalt you. And he says, in the kingdom of God, first comes humility, then comes glory. And we see this modeled for us most clearly in the Savior's birth. Jesus shows up in the mundane. Here's the second truth I want you to see. Not only did Jesus show up in the mundane, Jesus shows up to the mundane. Look with me again, beginning in verse 8. It says, In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. 
Jesus shows up to the mundane. I love the shepherds. The reason I picked this text is because of the shepherds. I mean, outside of Jesus actually being born, my favorite thing about the Christmas story is the shepherds. Because the shepherds are some of the most unlikely characters. And yet at the same time, they are the perfect choice for who God would first declare the birth of the Savior of the world to. Because we have to remember what it meant to be a shepherd. Right? To be a shepherd meant that you were on the fringes of society. Like you were considered an outcast and even untrustworthy. I mean, according to the Talmud, right, the central text for rabbinic Judaism, shepherds were considered so untrustworthy that their testimonies weren't accepted in the court of law. Due to the very nature of their work, they were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. Therefore, they were unable to participate in the ceremonial law and observances of the faithful Jew. But I want you to see how amazing this is. All right, so they're, they're out in their fields. So try to put yourself there, right? They're, they're out in the fields. They're caring for the flock, and an angel of the Lord appears to them. Says to them, don't be afraid. For look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people today in the city of David. A Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. I want, I want you to see the beauty in this. So shepherds, as we just mentioned, were not able to participate in the ceremonial law, even though their profession is what made the ceremonial sacrifice possible. Now track with me here. One commentator, Leon Morris, he notes this. He said, it's not unlikely and most likely probable that these very shepherds at the time were pasturing the flocks destined for the temple sacrifices. Flocks were supposed to be kept only in the wilderness and a rabbinic rule provides that any animal found between Jerusalem and a spot near Bethlehem must be presumed to be a sacrificial victim. Okay, track with me here. These shepherds encountered sacrificial lambs every day of their life, but they were never allowed to benefit from the sacrifice. And in these verses, the angel invites them to go and meet not a sacrificial lamb, but their sacrificial lamb. As John the Baptist would later declare of Jesus, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The angels declared today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. They might not thought of you as worthy enough for these sheep, but for you, the Messiah has come. Notice who the angel did not go to. Did not go to Caesar Augustus did not go to the governor, Quirinius. In the beginning of chapter 3, he's going to list all of the rulers at the time. They didn't show up to any of them. They didn't go to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or any other religious leader. The angels went to the mundane, to the ordinary, to the outcast, and the overlooked and declared, today a Savior is born for you. But it gets even better. Then in verses 14, 13 and 14, it says, Suddenly there was a, a multitude of a heavenly host. So one angel turns into a multitude, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. And 
I, I wanted to point out, this doesn't really even fit with my point, but it's just so good I had to say it. So I just put it in here, right? It says there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts. Like the translator should have left the literal translation because I think Luke's trying to tell us something. The literal translation in the Greek, the heavenly host is translated as a heavenly army. This is the same army that fights for the Lord in 1 Kings 22, right? Like the Lord has an army too. And I never really thought about this before. As much as I've studied this text, I've preached this text before. I've preached this text before to you. Some of you are like, I don't realize that. Well, you need to pay more attention, okay? But I've never seen this before. I love the Bible. I love that. Now, like, it blows my mind. I, I, almost have a, I almost have a doctorate in this stuff, and God still, like, blows my mind when it comes to his word. Like, I never thought about this. Why do you send an army to declare peace? Like, God sends the armies that fight for him in 1 Kings 22, but they show up and they don't wield an angelic sword. They don't throw an angelic spear. They don't wage war at all. They say, peace. You only do that if the war's over. Church, I'm trying to tell you, Jesus is our peace. He is our peace with God and our peace with one another. So the army doesn't have to fight because Jesus is conquering. Because Jesus came, born of a virgin, faithful in life, because he suffered and died and three days later rose from the dead, we can have peace with God. That's the story of the gospel. That's the message of Christmas. The only reason Paul can declare in 1 Corinthians 15 that death has been swallowed up in victory, where death is your victory, where death is your sting, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only reason he can write that is because 50 years earlier another declaration rang out, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill to men. And all of this declared to shepherds, to the mundane, to the ordinary people who no one else regarded with any favor. And this truth has got to offer us some encouragement. I mean, here it is. Jesus has never needed you to be extraordinary For him to meet you where you are. Jesus has never needed other people to see you as extraordinary. To meet you where you are. Jesus doesn't need you to have the degrees. He doesn't need you to have the corner office. All the prestige and the honor that this world can offer. Jesus will meet you in the midst of the mundane and the ordinary and declare peace. In fact, this morning, right now, if you feel overlooked, overlooked at your job, overlooked in your relationships, overlooked with your friends, if you feel like you're working a dead-end job with no career growth, no potential, no one respects what you do, if you are a stay-at-home mom and you feel like you are overworked, overlooked, and looked down on, just know that you are the perfect candidate to encounter the glory of God. Because God will meet you in the mundane and the ordinary and say, come to me and find peace. So what do the shepherds do? Well, in verse 15, it says, When the angels had left and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened. Because when Jesus meets you, you you can't stay. 
which the Lord has made known to us. So they hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. And seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. It's just like God to show up to the mundane and the ordinary. Have you noticed how almost every major thing that takes place in the life of Jesus is communicated to and through the ones that society thought were the outcasts? Shepherds with the birth, women with the resurrection. In a society where they weren't reliable witnesses either, Jesus, he doesn't need to operate the way that our world operates. But here's where I want to leave you. This is what we've been building to. Here's the last point I want you to see. Be honest, I wrote this point before I wrote the sermon. Jesus not only shows up in the mundane, he not only shows up to the mundane, but watch this. Jesus sends us back to the mundane. This is my favorite part of the shepherd's story. Look at verse 20. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. Those three words are so profound. The shepherds returned. There's something marvelous about that. These shepherds saw the sky split open. They heard an angelic chorus declaring that the Messiah has come. The Savior is born. Glory in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill towards men. They saw heaven open and then they went and saw God in flesh. And the Bible tells us if we have seen Jesus, we have seen the glory of God. They saw the glory of God. And after all was said and done, they didn't have a speaking tour. They didn't earn Twitter verification. They didn't get a book deal. They weren't invited onto all the theological podcasts. None of that. The shepherds return to what? Their sheep. To the mundane, to the ordinary, to the overlooked. In one sense, everything had changed. And at the same time, nothing had changed. And there's beauty in that. This sermon, in fact, this entire series was inspired by those three words, the shepherds returned. The inspiration came from a book I read about a year ago. It was a book entitled The Imperfect Pastor. It's fitting that I would read that, amen? Amen. That was your shot. You didn't take it. There's a section in that book where Zach Eswine talks about exalting in monotony, exalting in the mundane, the ordinary, and he uses this text. I don't, I don't normally do this. I like to kind of paraphrase and work it and redo it, but I want to read to you that section of the book. It's lengthy, but it's worth it. This is what he writes. He says, it feels... It feels strange to say it, but the Christmas shepherds are providing me texts for pastoral theology. They're skilled in dealing with anticlimax. Do you remember? He writes, angels 
infiltrate the skies right before the shepherd's eyes. The glory of God thunders in chorus. Ancient promises are fulfilled and witness. Fear seizes these sheepmen. Good tidings are spoken to them. The Savior is born and this will be a sign that will confirm it to you. To see and hear angels were spectacular already. Imagine how spectacular the Messiah's sign could be. Perhaps God would reach down his hand, create a new planet, Then he could hold it between his thumb and his index finger and place the planet in its new position in the universe right before their very eyes. Surely this would be a sign worthy of the Savior from God. But here the anticlimax begins. No planets were formed. You'll find a baby, they said, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The sign of God's fame lay in the aroma of cattle and hay the placenta of new birth, the cries and warmth of ordinary life. To these ordinary sheep herders, God has revealed glorious and fantastic wonders. And now, the second anticlimax confronts us. According to the Gospel of Luke, after beholding and participating in this too grand for words event, the shepherds returned. They returned? That fact confounds me. After beholding the glory, the shepherds went home. But it's right here God in his grace disrupts us. By means of the shepherds returning, God seems to seriously imply that seeing God's glory, hearing his voice, receiving his good news, and beholding his love was never meant to deliver us from the ordinary life and love in a place. It was meant to provide the means to preserve us there. A few pages later, he writes this. I'm slowly beginning to picture those Christmas shepherds as if years later, they sat around the fire in the cool of a late evening. Children and grandchildren staring into the crackle and flicker with drowsy eyes and ready for bed. You see, glory had not delivered them from the daily grind. It had not delivered them from Herod killing every two-year-old male or Roman occupation or a corrupt church that would in the end yell, crucify. Seeing the glory did not deliver them from this. And yet the aged shepherd stokes the embers and says, did your old grandpa ever tell you about that time the angels Suddenly, a chorus of grandchildren interrupts, rolling their eyes. They moan, yes, Papa, we've heard that story before many times. The old shepherd stokes the burning bark. He pauses and looks up into their young eyes. His smile broadens. Let me tell you again, he'll say. And as the young ones moan, tired from this exalting in the same old thing, The aged man demonstrates his absence of fatigue. With awe and memory in his voice and an ache in his back from the long day, he begins to retell the history. It was an ordinary night, and we were watching our flocks, he says. And so an exaltation amid the monotony rises. Worship, hope, and testimony refuse to quit. For a moment, I feel his joy among the sheep. His kids will grow up and wonder. Something larger than this this worn tent and these long days had put a fire in Gramps' heart. 
and life into his eyes. It's almost as if he had some news, as if God were with him here among the sheep pens on this unforgiving hillside, unknown by the world, but known by God. You see, church, there is a reason that when Jesus saves us, he doesn't change our environment. He sends us right back into it, but changes how we interact with it. We enter back into the mundane and we declare his glory in the ordinary and the everyday patterns and rhythms of life because when Jesus shows up, we find glory in the mundane. And it is in and through the mundane that God often does his best work. You ask me, Pastor, how do you know that? Here's how I know. Isaiah tells us, because he grew up before them like a young plant and a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. What Isaiah is trying to communicate is that in appearance, Jesus was mundane and ordinary. He wasn't this beautiful person that you see in pictures. He didn't have white skin and blonde hair and blue eyes. He was an everyday, ordinary looking man from the Middle East and no one looked at him and said, that That's the son of God. He was mundane. He was ordinary. He was unattractive. He was like someone people turned away from, Isaiah says. He was despised and we didn't value him. And yet, he bore our sickness and carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment of our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all turned to our own way, but the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. How do I know that God's glory is revealed in the mundane? Because the gospel declares it to me. That God can do his best work in the things that the world doesn't appreciate, doesn't doesn't look at with any worth or value, and there God can show up. And if God shows up there, then we, we have to believe that when Jesus shows up, we can find glory in the mundane. So I'm done. Let me say this. You're going to walk out of this place. You know, we do things here for a reason. In just a few minutes, Pastor Lance is going to stand up here, and he's going to put an arm up, and he's going to say, if you're able, extend an arm and repeat after me. And you're going to put an arm up and repeat after him, and you're going to say, grace. He's going to to say, grace, and you're going to say, grace. He's going to say, mercy, and you're going to say, mercy. He's going to say, peace, and you're going to say, peace. And then everybody's going to start talking and start moving and grabbing their stuff. But Lance is going to say one more thing. He's going to say, you are sent. Because we are sending you back out into the mundane, into the ordinary. We're sending you back to go do dishes, to go wipe butts, to go pick up kids, to go fight with your boss. We're sending you back into a world that for many of you is mundane and ordinary. And I'm going to tell you, it's probably not going to change. And you get to walk into that and see the glory of Jesus. Because he shows up there and you have something to say. Let's go before him. Heavenly Father, God, give us grace to glory in the mundane. 
to see you at work in the things that the world doesn't value and doesn't appreciate, in the people that the world doesn't value and doesn't appreciate. Help us to believe that you are a God whose thoughts are not our thoughts, your ways are not our ways, but you have a track record of using the ordinary, everyday rhythms of life to do extraordinary things. And God, I pray that whatever we are being sent back into, that we would worship you for your glory that is present there. We thank you, God, that because Jesus has shown up, we we can glory in the mundane for your fame and for your glory. Amen.